from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Happy New Year. We will start this year as we do every quarter with our pals David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman. They'll walk us through the firm's latest slide deck, which wraps up 2017 and takes a look down the road of what's coming our way this year. If you want to see the deck for yourself as usual, there's a link in the description of the podcast. Or hey, you could just listen to this podcast. Okay, let's rock and roll. Here's David Castagnetti and Bruce Melman. David and Bruce, Happy New Year. Welcome back to 14th and G. So it's the new year. As we were heading out of town in 2017, there was kind of a lot. Uh, before we get to 2018, let's start with 2017. What did they get done? Obviously, tax reform is a big deal. What happened on the Hill before we got out of town? Bruce, why don't I, why don't I start with you on that one? Yeah, Republicans ended 2017 in a, uh, in a fairly good mood. There was a lot of chaos throughout the year. A new and less predictable president had people questioning, but you end with tax reform that's uh, the biggest tax changes in 31 years, which were huge. Caps off a year where they got a ton of Republican judges uh, confirmed and in process. President Trump was very successful there. Uh, The president had campaigned to meaningfully deregulate, and you saw significant regulatory relief, especially in areas of energy and labor for a lot of Republican constituencies. Things beyond the border, whether it's ISIS collapsing in the Middle East or a 70% reduction in attempts to cross our borders, and the stock market up 35% since President Trump was elected, suggesting that the markets are happy. Can I? I was. I want to go off the board here for a second. Can I ask a stock market question? Sure. Because it seems like good news, the stock market goes up. Bad news, the stock market goes up. I mean, is that really an indicator anymore? Well, I think it's an indicator that we in Washington are a lot less important than we think we are. And so whether it's the Post or the New York Times or everybody who is bent out of shape by uh, politically incorrect tweets or objections to the NFL folks taking a knee or not, turns out it doesn't really matter to market fundamentals. <laughs> That's probably right. Um, okay, David, I know you have a theory that this is, you know, 2017 had a, was a bit of a win for the Republican establishment. Walk me through that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a couple things. Just to underscore something Bruce said right at the very beginning, I, to, to call him a very unpredictable president is very kind, right? The president certainly is all over the place and always tweeting about, you know, some issues that are are completely irrelevant to being president of the United States. You just don't see it yet. (laughs) (laughs) But on on the other side, if you you think about the Republican establishment, Bruce touched on a couple of things I think that are important, and I'll add a couple more. But one is corporate tax cut, right? That's huge. Um, Many people were caring about that. Right now, there's already political ads defending what a great tax cut it was. Second part is, Bruce mentioned a little bit, was a rollback on various regulations, including it's gonna be probably offshore drilling in Florida now. That's kind of interesting for the Republican establishment. Judicial nominations, huge victory. And probably the greatest victory that happened to the Republicans, at least in my belief, is Steve Bannon and, and Roy Moore are both out, right? There's, there's no one there kind of upsetting the apple cart in terms of electing candidates to the Senate who are, you know, as unpredictable, to use, use Bruce's word, as unpredictable as the president in the United States Senate. 
So, David, let's stay with that. Um, you mentioned Roy Moore. Obviously, Democrats also felt like they had a bunch of wins in 2017. We have a Democratic senator from the great state of Alabama for the first time in the history of the United States or something. They also feel like they're winning. Their base is energized. The, I mean, I think that, you know, a couple things. I, you know, having uh, uh, Senator Jones come in from Alabama, I think, you know, certainly going back 25 years was the last time a Democrat won. Winning, I think, you know, a couple of stories that did not get mentioned was winning every single statewide office in Virginia. The Democrats won. That is huge, right? In, including uh, Democrats won in New Jersey. Uh, and a, a governor's race there that was held with Republicans. They've stopped the basically the repeal and replace efforts that uh, the Republicans had in terms of health care. Uh, Democrats are way up uh, in the generic balloting at this point. Um, that sets up a good sign. The president's numbers, which is probably the greatest indicator of, of uh, how many seats a president's going to lose, that sits really well. You had a kind of a little story in Ohio yesterday that went, has kind of gone by the white side, that Josh Mandel, the, the best candidate that the Republicans had against Sherrod Brown, uh, was is, is now said he's not running. It means in Ohio, Montana, Michigan, North Dakota, they couldn't re- recruit their first candidate. Emily's List said they've had over a thousand phone calls from women who are seeking to run for office. They are very optimistic. This is a great, it's feeling like it's a great year for Democrats and um, really kind of doing what they need to do to kind of get ready for the for the election. So, you know, we's obviously we turn to an even-numbered year. That means we're talking politics. Well, two pieces of this first. Um, I, we have seen a extraordinary number of uh, retirements already. I assume we will see more. So as we head into 2018, Bruce, what are we looking at as the Hill uh, has to uh, has to has to deal with? Um, it feels a little bit to me like we're kind of dealing with a lot of the same stuff we dealt in 2017 because we punted a little bit of it. You know, you're right. A lot of the issues that were in front of us remain in front of us. What's interesting is 2017. You go through all of the wins that I described at the beginning for Trump for the Republicans. None of them required 60 votes, and few of them got. Uh, more than one or two Democrats, and I'm only in that mind thinking of some of the confirmation votes. Otherwise, uh, an organization called Fiscal Note, which brings analytics to legislative processes, did an analysis for our firm and found that we have literally the most party-line votes, if you take out the unanimous votes for things that are easy, uh, the most party-line votes in 100 years Hmm. in the House and in the Senate. And when you look forward, we now need 60 votes for to avoid a shutdown on the 19th, to extend NSA surveillance, uh, FAA uh, reauthorization, the uh, child's health insurance, to pay for disasters, and of course, to allow the dreamers to stay in this country. Uh, let's hope they haven't forgot how to get 60 votes and how to get bipartisan compromise, because there is no way around that, and you can't get rid of the filibuster and get around it. You really have 49 healthy Republicans in town, uh, with two, God willing, will recover, but, but are not uh, healthy enough to be relied upon to be able to vote any given day. So how do you think this comes together then? You know, um, is this a big package? Are we coming together with a, a series of smaller packages? Um, what's your guess at this point? Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, I'll tell you, CR, we've, we've been prognosticating for a while, and I've almost gone to the full George Costanda punditry at this point. If everything that I thought was wrong and the opposite of everything I think is now right, uh, it feels to me that 
uh, welcome to what Democrats thought after 2016, <laughs> well, man. Well, I was right there with uh, you and predicting. Uh, I, they're not, I don't believe ultimately they're going to shut things down and keep them shut down because you can't have no government. Um, that's what I think, which means, of course, they will shut things down. But <laughs> I, I think they're going to cut a deal. I think uh, they're going to have the Dreamers not kicked out of the country, I hope. Uh, and in return, the president's going to get some funding for the border, uh, which the Democrats are going to have his explicit assurances not mean a wall. And he's going to then say is a wall and uh, win that debate in, in uh, rhetoric, in rhetoric. Um, I think you'll, you'll have uh, the NSA retain its authorities and children's health insurance will be funded. I mean, it'll be messy, but we'll get there. Uh, David, do you agree with him? Or? I, you know, I, I think the first thing the Republicans have to look for is how do, how do they talk to Democrats, right? Senator McConnell, to, to Bruce's point on needing 60 votes, Senator McConnell hasn't had to have a lot of conversation with Democrats in order to get bills passed at this point. And the question is, can he start to do that? It seems like on the tax bill, he missed an opportunity to have some conversations with Democrats, um, especially the Democrats who are up in kind of the big, uh, the big uh, red states. So, you know, do they get there? I think at the end of the day, the Republicans will cut a deal on DACA because they have to um, for their own self-preservation as well. And I think the Democrats are going to use every bit of leverage they have between now and uh, the next couple of weeks of, to, to use that as leverage to get a deal done. So I just want to add one thing because I was surprised that neither of you mentioned it. There was a story a while back about um, Speaker Ryan potentially not running for re-election, potentially not being Speaker again. Um, I think that's got to be in the background as he thinks about making deals with Democrats. Has he defanged the right a little bit in saying, hi, you don't want me to be here? That's great. I don't want to be here either. Now, his office has, has gone out of their way to deny the story. Um, but I wonder... Even if the story's not true, if that doesn't help give him on the House side a little bit of leverage, um, and maybe that's just me pontificating, but I, I mean, I, I'll take first crack at this. I, I, I think the interesting thing about Speaker Ryan is he, he unlike much, many of his colleagues in the House, actually believe government has a role and social programs have a role. We can debate on how those social programs are supposed to work and who they're supposed to benefit. But on the other side, I think, CR, you're right. And does that give him potentially some leverage to cut deals with Democrats and kind of say to the caucus, you know, this is the best that, that I could do and see how he sets himself up in order to potentially run for reelection or not? I'd only add, what kind of sane human being would enjoy being speaker? <laughs> <laughs> well, the only reason I bring it up is because there's a little bit of history in this. It's something similar to what happened around the end of Boehner. Once Boehner, Boehner's uh, speakership, he cut a relatively big deal, including a two-year budget deal. And most of the reason he was able to do it is because he didn't care. They didn't get a majority of majority. So that's kind of why I, why I brought that up. So shifting topics just a little bit, the... Um, you know, over the holidays, I did everything I possibly could to not talk about politics. I'm sure that's pretty much everyone else in the United States is the same way. It feels like Trump versus the media and the media versus Trump works for both of those people, but everyone in the wor world watching this um, is losing. Um, Bruce, you have some some data on this. Um, I, it doesn't make me feel any better, but what's 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 happening? What well, is it is. Uh symbiotic, I guess, in the same way a cigarette company and a uh, person with uh, lung cancer who can't stop smoking is symbiotic. <laughs> you know, both, uh, it's working, the fight with the media is working for Trump and it's working for the media. It's working for Trump because his base loves the political incorrectness. They love sticking it to the media elites, number one. Number two, uh, it neutralizes 
what would be fact checkers. Seventy six percent of Republicans don't. Seventy six percent of Republicans believe the media uh, fabricates stories from time to time to try to make him look bad. And we know uh, from all of the analyses, President Trump likes commanding center stage. Uh, our friends at Echelon Insights took a look at the year's worth of tweetings, however many billions that were, and found Trump was the number one story for every demographic every week of the year. That's commanding center stage. For the media, of course, their viewership on cable TV is up as high as 47% increase for MSNBC, 8% for Fox News. Readership for the New York Times is up, uh, and uh, it's a compelling narrative. These guys think they were put on earth to speak truth to power, to what is the new Washington Post thing? Democracy dies in darkness. <laughs> dun, that's, dun, dun. Right. That's what they're there. That's what they think they exist on the planet to do. And if there were ever a presidency calling upon them, this is, you know, this is uh, the, the uh, Nixon era revisited for them. Yeah, I actually watched The Post this weekend, oh, the, well. the, the movie The Post this weekend. It does have a little bit of a feel of that. It has a little yeah. bit of a feel of... of uh, Maybe we have to do this. Um, what do you? Th- I, I think, though, on it, it as as we just talk, continue to talk about traditional media, you also have to look at social media because social media has a role in this space. And when you see a little bit uh, in the last couple of days, the pressure Facebook's under in order to kind of you know monitor news that's coming out, or on the other hand, you saw Twitter the other day make an announcement that they're not going to bar world leaders from talking on their site or speaking on their site. You know, there's that pressure that exists in this new form of media that is catching up. And while the New York Times or or MSNBC can continue to to make some additional money on this, there is this wild, wild west that does exist out in the Facebook universe where people only speak to their friends. There there is no referee in, in in that universe. I think it just really means we should invest in Tylenol and Advil myself. <laughs> um, all right, couple rapid fire issues here. Um, let's tick off a couple of the big ones. Um, trade uh, NAFTA and Chorus. Um, there seem to be ongoing discussions. Um, David, do you want to give us a quick snapshot of kind of where we are on those and um, you yeah. know, what we might have to look forward to? I, I think that a couple of things as we look at the trade universe here. It's clear the president is going to make some kinds of declaration during the month of January. He has spent a, a fair amount of time meeting with the vice president, with Cohn, with Hassett, uh, with Lighthizer, with Ross, uh, a bunch of people from the ad community, which has really kind of changed the dynamic to, to the people who are the, kind of on the pro-trade side of kind of NAFTA and Chorus. That's a big, a big piece of what the Republicans care about. Um, you know, we'll probably, my guess is, we'll, we'll see some tariffs put in place on solar panels uh, moving forward. We'll potentially see some, some, uh, some dealings on the, the weight restrictions that uh, drivers have from Mexican to, to, to U.S. borders or the length of time that uh, Mexican drivers can drive in the United States, right? There'll be some changes on that. At the end of the day, do, does the president get to a point where he pulls that in after a chorus? I don't know. I still think that's a, a little bit uh, to be determined because of the political pressures he's, not, he's under. But on the other side of it is you can start to see he's going to do some things that would fall into his populist trade agenda as well. And while we're on the global scene, um, Bruce, there's a lot of kind of what's seen as anti-tech policies moving around the globe. Um you want to talk us through that a little bit and see kind of what should we be keeping our eye out for as the year begins? Well, sure. And as we both know, there's a lot been written on this. First, it's important to remember all tech is not the same. 
It's generally the, uh, the big four, according to uh, an author named Scott Galloway, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and uh, to an extent, Apple, are facing pushback around the world more so than all of the rest. Um, particularly, uh, the competition minister in the EU, Vestager, is, uh, is after them. There are two things going on. First uh, is there are externalities, whether it's uh, failure to contribute to tax bases just in the nature of their businesses. For example, Amazon doesn't pay a lot in taxes because they don't make a lot of profit because that's not been his business model. Or fake, fake news or sex trafficking. Uh, on those latter, they're facing some pressure in the United States, but they're facing even more in Europe. More broadly, what Europe's looking at is market power questions. Is Google a monopoly? Uh, should there be search neutrality in the same way Google used to say there should be net neutrality for internet access? Uh, they're definitely circling the wagons over in Europe. Uh, they should be protected, I think, over the next year in the United States from those questions. All right. Um so when we first sat down to do this, I thought we'd have a relatively easy kind of update on what was happening uh, in 2017, 2018. But here we are recording this, this you know, on the 8th of January, and it's been a wild ride since the beginning of the year. We have a controversial book out uh, um, claiming, uh, making some pretty outrageous claims about the president's fitness for office. Uh, the president responds on Twitter saying he is a stable genius. Um, and you have a very serious Mueller investigation um, kind of hanging over the White House. Um, how do they go about doing regular business? Um, David, you want to take a shot at that? I, I, I mean, I think a, a couple of things. Uh, your, your question's great. The other couple of things that you've seen in this time frame is you've seen the president attack the author, which is his MO, right, as mm -hmm. soon as he finds a... Uh, somebody to attack or somebody to take on, he takes the fight on and tries to discredit the author as much as he can. That, the other thing I think that's been interesting over the last couple of weeks is there's been a number of people from the vice president's staff who are leaving. And while we've already seen a great deal of turnover in the president's staff, you're starting to see the, the same kind of turnover in the, in the Pence universe. <laughs> So the question to me a little bit is, as we start to move forward, does that kind of now start to put more uh, power in the hands of Ryan and McConnell in order to help cut deals because the White House is not as kind of powerful? The, the one thing I, I would say that one person who does seem to be bumbling, bubbling up within the Trump universe is Mark Short, the, the director of congressional affairs. He has seemed to have a, a little bit of a more oversized role uh, in the Trump world than many congressional affairs persons ha people have, including being on the Sunday talk shows, that kind of thing, helping to deliver a message. So I think, you know, it, it, that dynamic may change and, the, and moving forward, if Bruce is right, in terms of kind of cutting some deals here, the, the power may go back to Congress uh, and not necessarily the power to the president. You know, our new quarterly analysis we've sent to clients and the media folks is entitled, Why 2018 Will Make 2017 Seem Tame. Um, we didn't really need so much support from uh, <laughs> the, the White House and the media yeah, in the first exactly. week, though it's appreciated. It, this is going to be a year in some ways uh, both like others and unlike any other. It's like others if you think about this. A White House warring against a special counsel. We saw that. That was the Clinton playbook in 97 and 98. That was what the Nixon folks did. When you think about a uh, nuclear brinksmanship with a foreign country, we also saw that in the Cuban Missile Crisis. When you think about the House and members of the House and the Senate being called to task for not living under the laws that others live upon, that was the House banking scandal in 92. 
when you think about a year where everybody perceives there may be a wave year, it was certainly 06, it was arguably 94 as well. It's a year with huge consequences for redistricting. The difference is all of those were years. We've never had a year with all of them at the same time, and that's what's making 2018 so special. The, the only one thing, too, that I may add that Bruce didn't mention in that is also just the number of House retirements that we've already seen. We're already well up over 50. I think we're around 52, 53, and about 33 of those are, uh, uh, 34 of those are Republican member, House members too. So it does kind of also show you the, the mindset of the Republican Party a little bit, that they're also a little bit nervous about what's going on, and is this job fun anymore, and can I cut deals, or is everything being dictated? Uh, to me. I also wonder what happens in the political sense from the Me Too movement, from the Times Up movement. Um, we're actually recording this the day after Oprah gave a, gave a pretty famous, uh, pretty well-received speech last night. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wonder kind of what that even turns into. Um, I know it'll probably turn into more female candidates, but but beyond that, it's a uh, the dynamics we're sitting in right now are certainly interesting. If you think about it, you know, the president uh, was in a bit of a Twitter, Twitter war with uh, North Korea like eight days ago. It feels like it was like <laughs> 10 years ago. All right, so let's wrap up. We normally wrap up with the coffee question, but since you guys are in here a bunch, we're going to change it up today. So um, next month, the uh, Olympics are in South Korea. Eyes of the world are on a, a pretty uncomfortable place these days. And here's the question for you. If you had, if your child worked really hard and is the skeleton person or a, you know, whatever else, a ski jumper, um, would you let him go? Um, and the reason I asked that is Bruce and I spent some time, we went out to Utah not long ago, and we met with a woman who does skeleton, and she talks about how the fact that she's basically put like six or eight or ten years of her life on hold, and she works out, you know, a zillion hours a day and all the rest of that stuff. It feels like this might be the most unsafe Olympics in recent time, I don't know. If I was a dad, would I let my kids go? I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I guess first, uh, unless use of iPhone has become an Olympic event, no Melman child will be invited <laughs> to the Olympics. But, but I'd absolutely have my kids go, 100% guaranteed. They've put their lives into becoming the very best in the entire planet at this. I don't believe it'll be run if it's not going to be safe. I don't believe, I'm, I'm hopeful that as crazy as uh, the leader of North Korea feels, I don't think he has a death wish. I think this is going to go off. And the question, if we're lucky, will be the usual question of, is there enough snow on the uh, downhill events? (laughs) On this one, I I have to say I agree 100% with Bruce. The only thing I I would say, just putting it in broader context, is, you know what, we can't stop living because there are threats out there. There have always been threats. We have to kind of deal with what's in front of us. And you know what, we have to live, continue to live and enjoy life and have fun. And if my kids... uh, we're good enough, and I'm, I'm kind of with Bruce on if there's an iPhone competition, my guys probably could give his guys a run for the money. You've not met my daughter. Uh, <laughs> but on the other side of it is you got to go for it. You can't wait. I'm just going to say you guys are bad parents. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, David Cassignetti, Bruce Melman, thanks for coming into 14th and G. Thanks, CR. Thanks, CR. I'd like to thank David and Bruce for coming in to chat with us. If the first couple weeks of 2018 have anything to say about 2018, we're in for a roller coaster of a year. Um, thanks for listening. Please do subscribe and tell a friend. If you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And we'll be back next time 
at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.